loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Jeff Porter. Jeff's the author of Lost Sound, The Forgotten Art of Radio Storytelling, the memoir Oppenheimer is Watching Me, and co-editor of Understanding the Essay. His essays and articles have appeared in several magazines and literary reviews, including the Antioch Review, Northwest Review, Shenandoah, Missouri Review, Hotel America, Wilson Quarterly, Contemporary Literature, and the Seneca Review. He loves cameras, cacti, dogs, and guitars, though not in that order. He splits his time between Tucson and Milwaukee. His latest work is Planet Claire, Sweet for Cello and Sad-Eyed Lovers. Welcome, Jeff. Hey, thank you, Cheryl. First, I I just have to thank you for your memoir. Um, Really so, so beautiful, the, the language and the writing, but also the way that you capture that sort of uh, I've been trying to think all day of the best way to describe my experience of it, which is sort of all time frames are happening at the same time, um, which is a way that I experienced grief. So it really resonated with me. Thanks so much for that. Well, thank you. Uh, I'd love for you to start just sharing with the listeners uh, the loss that led to your book and and maybe a bit about how it led to the book, because we all do different things. I do this radio show out of my grief, for instance. <laughs> you know, um, we all do different things with grief, uh, and I, I think it would be very interesting to know how you came to write this book in the way that you did. Okay, sure. Um, about four and a half years ago, uh, um, my late wife died suddenly. Claire Sponsler died suddenly and, and really abruptly. We had just come back from Dublin after spending the summer there in a study abroad program. Um, and she had a really wonderful time. She's, um, she's part Welsh, she's part English, um, and she's part Irish. And so she was really happy to be in cloud-covered skies, really enjoyed that. And we had spent so much time before in, in the really sunny Mediterranean parts where she would get burnt out. So it was a really good time for her. And so it was very, very strange and ironic. And I still can't deal with that irony. Uh, she was very, very happy. We came back and two weeks later, we're in, uh, we're in the States, we're in Iowa, and Claire collapses from a brain aneurysm. Um, she spends three days in the ICU unit um and but there's no signs of life really she is just kept artificially alive by machines and and then she dies and Mm -hmm. so there was that three-day period in which i was with her in the icu um and i wasn't prepared for this at all and Mm -hmm. i never really you know thought much about either of us having health problems. We were both very, very, very healthy. And, and we seem to be kind of at the peak of our lives. Um, 
And so we would be talking about the future and talking about things that pe middle-aged people talk about when they seem to be in good form. Um, so I wasn't prepared for this and I didn't know what to do. So I just started talking, started babbling. Um, as a language person, that's, <laughs> that's what I do best, <laughs> Yes, I guess. words is our trade, huh? <laughs> yeah, and you know, I didn't know what to say. And so, you know, um, the nurses would leave, they would, they would have a routine the ICU room, and um, as soon as as soon as they left, I would start talking to Claire. I'd be, I'd be rubbing her body parts, her fingers, her toes, um, you know, out of desperation. I mean, I was afraid mm -hmm. of losing my mind because I didn't know exactly, I didn't know vaguely how to deal with this. It was, it was so um, confounding and really so catastrophic, and I was very, very desperate. So I began speaking with her and I continued speaking with her. Um, in a way, it kind of quieted me down a little bit, just mm. sort of to talk to her. And it felt a little bit right to talk to her. Um, and I, I felt even better when the nurses walked by and looked at me like I was out of my mind. What's the guy? Who's the guy talking to? And um, I would just continue talking and it, somehow it felt... It was surreally right. Uh, I continued that. And so when after Claire died, um, I couldn't stop. Um, and so that's you know, what's interesting about that is everyone I know who works in end of life uh, talks about how important it is to do that. And it and it's just in, astounding to me that people who work in an ICU where, of course, you were not alone in that situation, right? It's kind of astonishing to me that they didn't know that that would be a good thing to do. <laughs> but your instincts won, so I'm happy about that for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they, they kept an eye on me. They, they found me sort of curious. Um, uh, but uh, I just continued on. It's, you know, I was, in a, I was sort of in a, in, in a state of desperation. Mm. Um, and it seemed to be the right thing to do because, you know, when Claire left and I went home, you know, the house was very empty and I began talking to empty chairs. Mm. Um, I would continue the same conversation. I mean, I really had to. What else are you going to do? Um, yes, but I can't tell you how often people interrupt that. You know, I'm a grief counselor in the rest of my life. And so, so frequently people come and say, I think I'm losing my mind because I, I keep talking to this person who's not there. And I'll say, oh, no, no, that's a good thing. You know, <laughs> that's, that's what you need to do because the person, the relationship isn't over, is it? I no. mean, you were in, yeah. you were in a, a, a daily conversation together and that doesn't really end because the person dies because their body quits. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't understand that. And so, I mean, it was sort of instinctively, I was behaving this way. And I didn't really know why. It's simply the only thing I could do. Um, and then it began to make sense. You know, I read, I read uh, um, that the conversation doesn't stop when someone leaves, you know, the conversation, mm. conversation goes on. And I think that's what was happening. Um, even though Claire didn't respond to me. <laughs> it's nevertheless, there was, there was an imaginary presence that was so vital to my um, going forward. And, and um, yeah, that imaginary presence also was vital to the idea of, of actually making a book. 
Mm. And it all started, again, because of this knee-jerk reaction of a language person to begin talking to his uh, um, talking to his comatose wife in ICU. Um, and I continue that, and then suddenly there was an imaginary presence, and around that I began to build the book. You know, it's uh, one thing that stood out in the book, which I really liked. I don't know if you did it intentionally or, or intuitively, but uh, sometimes I wouldn't quite know were we in the past, the present, or the future? Um, you know that um, you'd be talk, you'd be sharing a memory, and then you'd be sharing a current experience. Kind of they they wove together in a way, and I wondered if that was kind of how you experienced that time, uh, or if it was more came out of of um, crafting the book. No, no, no. It was, it was, you know, it was nothing crafty about that. It was, uh, um, it, it was an accurate reflection of my state of mind. Um, I mean, I didn't have good metaphors when I was writing the book for what I was experiencing. But when I look back now and begin talking about the book, it was as if I was traveling through a wormhole. Somehow I had been <laughs> thrust into a wormhole. And and we all know that in science fiction, wormholes scramble everything. They scramble space, they scramble time, they scramble identity. Um, and that was happening. And so, again, it was sort of, I was doing this instinctively. And then, it, you know, I began intuitively through the craft of writing to articulate that better. But it began really as, as just an instinctive response to death which <laughs> blew my mind, really. <laughs> blew my uh -huh. mind. It's, uh, you know, whenever I'm, I'm um, interviewing someone who lost a spouse suddenly, uh, I, I try that on because, of course, my wife, uh, as you may or may not know, but most of my listeners do, was ill for 10 years. Whoa. Uh, and she was never well. You know, she was she was ill that whole time, and so we were grappling with her death for ten years, and so comparing that, I there's I can't. It's unimaginable to me, kind of doing that all that work on the spot. Um, uh. Uh, I I know that doesn't make linear sense all that work, but the fact is, I did feel kind of prepared in a different way. But you, it was so out of your norm, it sounds like you just trusted your instincts. What else could you do is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, I really, yeah. I mean, um, I had to do something and I had to respond. I mean, there is always the option not to respond and just to um, just sort of crawl into a fetal position. And that was really tempting. You know, I was very mm -hmm. tempted to just sort of sit down and... and um, and be and fall into despair and become mute and and never say another word. I mean, throughout throughout that first year, that was always a temptation to sit down and never get up again. I mean, a part of me wanted to do that. Do you think it would have? I I know that most people. I know I had moments where I just wanted to lie down and I, I stayed very in the moment about it. Oh, I want to lie down right now. You know, I had no fear that it would last forever, but that was through practice of those 10 years, you know, seeing that everything changes kind of. But do you think as a person, it was actually true that you could have potentially lied down and never gotten up? 
Um, I mean, the temptation was there, and there were, there were a few times when, you know, I just didn't want to get up. I didn't want to take a pee. I didn't want to make a sandwich. Um, I just wanted to stay there. But um, no, I think, you know, um, being more adult about about that experience in, in retrospect, no, that, that couldn't have happened. I mean, there was... There was a fire in my belly that seemed to burn even 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 hotter when after Claire died, and that was kind of that was a little bit um, unexpected too. And I think that was part of I became very very restless, mm-hmm. very restless. And um, you know, the book project was a pretty effective way of channeling that restlessness into into writing and also exploring. Um, places in my imagination I'd never gone before as a teacher or as a writer. Mm. And so, and again, it's that kind of wormhole experience having right. lost someone. As you are somewhere um, um, you've never been before, worse, you don't know the rules. The compound, well, there are no rules. Because there, there are no rules except the ones you, yeah, you find your way to. Uh, yeah, yeah. One of my teachers used to say Braille method, you know. Yeah. <laughs> You just put your, would you share a little from the book before our first break? Um, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. From near the beginning of the book, which kind of captures what we're talking about, this kind of where, where am I sort of yeah. feeling. Okay, so this is from the, the prologue that sort of sets everything up before um, Claire and I are in the ICU at the hospital, and I'm babbling to her. So here's um, an an extract. When your partner dies, everything around you seems to collapse. You look deep within yourself, not for courage, just for the wherewithal not to lose yourself, not to lose your car in a parking garage. Please don't let me lose my car tonight in the hospital parking garage. The bigger question, which you don't dare ask yourself, is how to keep the nothing that is now you from exploding into bits and pieces that spiral out into space. My hair crackles with the static electricity, even as I write that sentence. Nothing is more real than nothing, wrote Beckett. Nothing is a word that sticks around, like flies in August or shadows in October. It's very complicated to write about death. Wish I didn't have to. Can you ever not know again? Not knowing about death is really good. To be so naive, maybe innocent too. I don't think I can do this alone. I don't think you can either. Sooner or later, it comes to death. Love flirts with grief every hour of the day. Outside my study, a road worker in brown overhauls is breaking up my street with a T-shaped jackhammer and is making ear-shattering sounds. Better that, though, than silence. Silence is scary. When the Lamb broke open the seventh seal, says the book of Revelation, there was silence. Now that's spooky, like dead air on the radio. Life is deafening. (laughs) Isn't it? (laughs) We're having storms where I lived the last few days that have been very loud. (laughs) You know, it's sort of no, no humans involved, just life, just the surrounds have been making big noise. Would you still say, uh, you know, you say to be so naive, maybe innocent too, is wonderful. Basically, um, would you still would you still say that? 
<laughs> well, you know, that's that sort of nostalgia for something, for that 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 kind of um, mythic time, you know. Mm-hmm. Time, in a way, is really defined by the absence of death. And so there is, there's always that longing for that. And I think in our lives, we create a certain little space where mythic time exists. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I mean, again, for Claire and I, here we are, we're, we're having fun in Dublin. We come back. It's the start of the school year. And, and um, we're, we're talking about, you know, life, normal life, um, with no inkling of, of what lies right around the corner. And I think, you know, we were, we were existing in mythic time there. You know, the, um, and I think maybe we have to. I mean, how can humans really uh, um, go on with their lives when they're, um, when they're facing, confronting, worrying about something that makes ab- absolutely no sense, but yet is so powerful and so important that it defines us um, as we are, the idea of death. Nobody, there's no help out there for the idea. (laughs) Only facing it, I suppose, which you can't help when you, when it happens to you, right? Right. (laughs) Let's go to a break and and, and talk about that more when we get back. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find um, Jeff Porter's beautiful book, Planet Claire, go to anywhere great books are sold. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What sets apart voiceamerica.tv from the other video content providers on the internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main voiceamerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Jeff Porter about his memoir, Planet Claire. Right before the break, Jeff, we were talking about um, uh, 
I, I guess the idea of ignorance is bliss <laughs> in a way. Um, uh, kind of living without a constant awareness that something like what happened with your your love, Claire, without the awareness that could happen, right, at any time. Um, but I was, it was making me recall a certain point, I've been remarried for 22 years or so, and uh, I remember at a certain point, my um, then girlfriend um, said, you know, there's no emergency happening. Apparently, I had been living, I wasn't feeling scared, but I was putting a little too much pressure on the moment, if that makes sense, (laughs) you know, as if every single moment was the very last one. Uh, And so, it makes me wonder, you know, in some way, your, your loss put all those small moments of a daily life into a new form that's really clear in your book where they had different or bigger meaning in some ways. And, uh, you know, what you, what would you have said if you knew it was, you know, all those kinds of questions. And I wondered, have you gone back to sort of blissful ignorance in some way? Are you changed in any any way by the fact that you viscerally know this is always a possibility? What what would you say about that? Uh, Yeah, there is, you know, you do, you do, um, you do fade back to a certain kind of normalcy. I wouldn't say that this normalcy is so convincing or compelling <laughs> as it was before. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's a, it's a very tentative kind of thing. And I think there is there is an intuitive and unspoken contract between you and life. You say, okay, you know, I know this isn't really true, but we're going to do this because we have to do this. We're going to pretend that, you know, there, there is something there, the world is normal and that death will not be uh, hiding around every shrub or su- suaro. Uh, um, and you, you, I think you, you, you negotiate, I know, I think I negotiated some kind of deal to continue on, to move on, hmm. but it's with me. I carry, you know, I carry that moment and um, I carry that grief with me. And the grief is, as you know, the grief is always changing and evolving. Absolutely. Um, and I do think that grief is, is almost another, I felt at times like I had um, a second body. And I mm-hmm. think I mentioned that in the book, a second body, that this grief was a growth inside of me, that it was a body and it, and, and it needed to grow and I needed to allow it space to grow. And that was partly the work of the book, um, was to create space for this grief to grow, to act itself out, to play itself out. And once the book is over, and I think I did a fair enough job, I, I don't think grief was too disappointed. Um, it's <laughs> I like me. that, the idea that grief is, you know, sitting there, our own grief is sitting there saying, have yeah. they really done it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and um, so I think that, you know, I, I, I bartered some, some kind of deal. Um, with life and and with grief, um, but you know the, 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 the grief's end of the contract was well. Look, you know you have to understand. I'm going to be with you from now on. Mm. That whenever sure. you know things things will happen again, and I, I will be here, and um, I will be your neighbor and um, your companion, and um, 
even though I can't speak, and you know, I think in the book, it's grief is, is sort of compared to a cello, and the sound it makes is the sound of a cello. Um, it nevertheless is expressive, and um, it will be there. And yeah, I kind of feel the presence. Mm. That that you know, obviously, I bring that experience into everything I do in my work life and, and in the rest of my life, and that that does feel true to me. I, I wouldn't try to get rid of it, actually, because um, it hurt quite a bit at various points, but it also grew me. Uh, yeah. and I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to miss out on that. I, I so resonate with the idea of cello as the instrument of grief. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. I used to play cello, so that's part of it. Oh, really? But Yes, <laughs> when I was a kid and a teenager. But um, there's a movie, Truly Madly Deeply. Uh, Alan Rickman played a dead guy who was a cello player who came back. Wow. Um, it was a very healing movie to me in grief. Wow. <laughs> it's very hard to get a hold of these days, but I, I think I ended up re-watching it on, on YouTube or something at some point. But speaking of films, uh, you talk in the book, and I'm going to have you read about it, um, about Bergman's movie, The Seventh Seal, which ironically was my favorite mo movie in high school. I, I had a very dark high school time. Wow. <laughs> and, and I have no, you know, I was I was kind of with the arty hip hippies, I guess. <laughs> you know, there were the light and breezy stoners and there were the arty hippies. I was one of those. So um we would go see Bergman movies. And um it, it was interesting to be reminded of that by your book and think back that I was that I was interested in that with no experience of death at that time. Um, I wasn't. It didn't scare me, which seems weird to me. But True. would you would you um, share that that bit from the book about that movie? Sure, be glad to. So this, in a way, is a continuation of of the prologue where I last left off. Um, and so we've, we the, the same narrator is talking now after the jackhammer and all the sounds. Um, life is deafening, he says. In the Bergman film, The Seventh Seal, death follows a medieval knight returning home from the Crusades. He is a bitter man, weary and disillusioned, troubled by the silence of God in the face of so much dying. He meets a stranger who doesn't look too chirpy. Who are you, asks the knight. I am death, says death. You have come for me, asks the knight. I've been at your side for a long time, says death. The knight is worried that life is nothing more than senseless terror, so he asks death to play a game of chess, to extend life just long enough to find some answers. If death is the only certainty, what else is there? Death shrugs his shoulders and accepts the challenge. The knight suddenly feels inspired. I, Antonius Block, am playing chess with death, he says. Death doesn't really care one way or another. He just looks bored in his ominous black cloak. His indifference is beyond terror. The crazy jackhammer pounds the street, bashing through concrete, bone jarring steel on stone, bits of rock flying off. How does the road worker survive that commotion? Bang, crack, whack. Things are always flying off, more than we know, I think. Sometimes disastrously. It's the law of centrifugal force. 
Everything is in flight from an imaginary center. Dragonflies, beetles, turtles, swallows, desert nomads, comets, asteroids. Asteroids are the worst because they're rocky and bulky. The Kuiper belt is teeming with asteroids, short period comets and icy bodies, also dwarf planets and little moons. A hundred years ago, an asteroid from the Kuiper belt exploded over Siberia. It just flew off into space. It had no business crashing in Siberia, but there it was, a large flying rock. The fireball wiped out 2,000 square miles of taiga forest. There was a mighty boom. Eight million trees went up in flame. The explosion rocked the earth, split the sky in two. The jackhammer has stopped. The peonies are exhausted and there hasn't been rain in weeks. I'm wearing a black sweatshirt, blue jeans, and Converse sneakers. I look like a man who is quietly at work. But in my head, asteroids are crashing into the earth with the force of atom bombs. That amazing sense of, of you look you look normal, more or less, <laughs> right? <laughs> if you walk down the street, people might not know. And, and meanwhile, you're blown apart, basically. Yeah. Uh, that's such a familiar feeling to me. I, I seem to be more okay if I was just by myself, but <laughs> for me, it was going out in public that brought that sense of, you know, explosion. But interestingly, in your book, I, I had such a tremendously strong sense of, of actually going to outer space. That's an image of outer space coming down. <laughs> but, yeah, right. um, but it also seems to me you had a very strong sense of kind of transporting. Is that a way you might put it, or would you say it differently? Um, no, I mean, there was, there was that... Um, you know, I think the corollary to that desire to sit down on the chair and never get up again, uh, the corollary to that was to really take off and never come back again. And so and I did actually f have this sensation that when Claire died, part of me left. And mm -hmm. so uh, that other character, that alternative self called Space Boy in the book is the is the figure who does take off. And um, this is just too much for him. Uh, grief, melancholy, sadness is just too much for him. He takes off and he says, I am going to find her. So he goes through outer space in search of, uh, in search of Claire. Um, and the two, the narrator and the space boy keep in radio contact. And um, so they, you know, it's sort of the typical split self. I mean, I don't know how it, you felt um, when you lost your, your wife, but uh, you know, there is the, the, you know, the, there's that explosion. And I, you know, to continue that metaphor, a part of me, uh, like a rock just flew off into outer space in the opposite direction. So that was kind of an important part of, uh, at least psychologically, of this idea of grief, that grief is so uh, so catastrophic that it can split the personality into many pieces. And that was not really kind of a literary decision to make, but I actually a sort of felt experience having gone through this catastrophe. And so I created that character to kind of play it out on the page. 
It's very interesting because there's a, a kind of a, maybe because of your background with literature and, um, you know, writings <laughs> over time, over history, but um, there's a sort of epic quality sometimes um, in your book that that I appreciated. And it, it sort of connected for me with how epic loss is. You know, it's not the same as depression. I was depressed when I was young. Grief doesn't feel like that to me. Uh, it's so full of all kinds of things, right? <laughs> and that's, you know, all yeah, kinds of true. feelings, all kinds of, of catapults and, you know, going off into space and crashing to earth. It's, it's so active in some way. Uh, while sometimes the action is you want to lay down, but <laughs> um, I just I just felt that sense that you were in motion with your grief, uh, that that's part of how um, how you experienced it. I know I listened to an interview you did where you and the interviewer were talking about kind of being um, troubled or offended by the the idea of a grief journey. And I agree because it's become kind of trite, right? But it is a grief motion, I would it is. say. Yes, absolutely. You don't know where you're going. And, you know, that's why I've, I've now come to really like the wormhole ideas because, you know, in the wormhole, you don't know where the hell you're going. Um, mm -hmm. And you don't know how you're going or why you're going. You're just in the wormhole. And you've got, and you're moving, and you're moving pretty fast, according you know to most of our fictions. Um, and you have to figure out how things work here. You have yes. to think fast. And, and so, yeah. And for you, it seemed as if also some way that your life was grounded, or you as a person were grounded, was because of the difference between you and Claire. Uh, that she sort of kept you down to earth. Would that be true to say? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that's definitely, um, you know, part of, that's part of the sort of dynamic between the two characters, between between the lost wife and between the narrator. Um, and that's why I think Space Boy is, is, has been liberated. <laughs> <laughs> Some things came back you'd let go of <laughs> in the interest of a good marriage, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was sort of funny. Um, and I mean, honestly, I mean, I, I did have these adolescent urges when I was writing the book that I normally don't have when I'm writing books. And um, I was so grateful for that um, because it allowed me to behave far differently from the way that I do in, in you know, these more serious books, even though this is a, you know, I mean, what could be more serious than a book about death? But um, that's not the way that I experienced it as a writer. Absolutely. You know, I, I um, have published a novel that's pretty, uh, it's nobody in it is, is me or the people I love, but many of the experiences are from my time with my, my wife. And I, the publisher, it was out of their wheelhouse, and she once said, um, it's so somber, or it's so something about it being very heavy. And I was like, God, I just don't experience it that way. Um, neither do I experience your book that way. But I think that may be the difference between having been through grief and resonating with the experience versus 
reading about it as someone who hasn't gone through it, maybe. That's yeah, just like, a guess. I like, the, I like the word resonating. Um, I think that's, can, that's, we, can we come back to it in a minute? Because it's time sure. for another break. Yeah. Uh, listeners, you can go to weatheringgrief.com, my website, or the Good Grief host page. And to find Jeff Porter's book, you can go to akashicbooks.com and, and look up Planet Claire, a.k.a. shicbooks.com. Be back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent. Inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I've been talking with Jeff Porter, the author of Planet Claire. And before the break, Jeff, I had just uh, used the word, once you've had these big griefs and you read uh, someone's deep expression of grief, it's resonant. And I think you had something to say about that word. Uh, yeah, it's a sound. I, you know, I love sound words and um, resonance seems to be a really useful word in this case. And I, looking back, I... I would say that there was um, an effort on my part to vibrate at the same frequency as this as this imagined grief. Mm. So you know, I, I mean, I I was looking for grief. I mean, I knew it was there, and it was it was fairly comprehensive. Sometimes it was overwhelming, but it did feel like an organic thing, like a like a creature. Yes. And um, I really wanted to. Uh, um, find out how to share the stage with that with that creature and i think i needed to vibrate at the right frequency so that um it would be there with me rather than working against me or rather than you know running off and hiding one thing that comes to my mind is when you've when you've truly loved someone clearly you you had a true deep love with claire and also an everyday you know irritation in the if you didn't do something a certain way or what, you know, real life, <laughs> but true love. And I had that with, with my wife as well. It's giving up a whole lot to want to get rid of grief. You know, you'd kind of have to get rid of the person, wouldn't you? Yeah. And, you know, it's also, uh, it's, it's, I would never say it's kind of a gift, but it is an addition to life that, um, you know, it's an option for all of us because we all have opportunities to um, meet our grief. Um, and 
it's your option whether or not to to embrace it to find it really because i do think you know it um it will find you only when you create space for it in your mm. in your own psyche and the book was a way of of doing that the book was trying to figure out how to how to let grief play itself out in me because that's what i felt it wanted to do and if it didn't do that then i knew a little part of me would die oh i i feel the truth of that very deeply uh, there's a line from a book by um bill hayes who was um oliver sacks lover at the end of his life and um but he he had a previous um partner who died suddenly in a similar way to your wife and a friend said to him grief grief will change you let it and that that has stuck with me you know you have to kind of bow to it in some in some way don't you yeah i'd like you to to share one other part of the book and then after that i'd like to talk go forward from there because this is uh, another um, description of your process of grief. But I'm also aware that, like me, you've you've married again. You know, uh, many things have happened in your life since then, which is a relatively short time, wouldn't you say? Um, yeah. And that that process of of love within the fact that you don't get rid of the other person, but you also didn't divorce them, right? <laughs> you know, um, I think that's a beautiful but complicated process, and I'd love to talk with you about it. But first, would you share um, the, the part of the book about um, her collapse replaying in your head? It starts or, with that. The day you collapse keeps replaying in my head, looping over and over. An ordinary Wednesday in late summer, mild, sunny, busy day. The plumber would be by any minute now. He would tell us how urgent the water leak was, whether or not we could travel east. You asked me why I never chopped fruit in the morning for breakfast. I said it was unforgivable of me to be so lazy that I myself was puzzled by my unhelpfulness. You said you were surprised by my gracious reply. Those were your last words as you climbed the stairs for your morning yoga, your last words. You were surprised. It was just an ordinary Wednesday morning in late summer. The sun was shining, black-eyed Susans were in bloom. You can sense life unfolding all around and it's such a mysterious feeling. But deep inside my belly is the aching reality of loss. It's hardening like a rock, like Martian glass. I carry this polished stone wherever I go and I know what it means. There are no answers. Obsidian is the form of not knowing. We were to drive east to Cincinnati, first to visit your mom, then on to Buffalo to see mine. The widow tour, we called it. Two women who lost their husbands, who were lonely. I had a queasy feeling because of the water leak. It was probably a ground leak in the main line, and we feared the worst, the tearing up of the front lawn at thousands of dollars. The real leak was in your brain upstairs. How ironic. Carl Jung would call this synchronicity, as though the house and you were bleeding in sync. As I write, the wind is roaring out my window. The wind rises and falls and troubles the ear, swells and surges. It's a sound that makes small animals seek cover. Out of nowhere comes the wind with hey-ho, the wind and the rain. 
When I close my eyes, the house rattles. I feel small, like a crumpled old man lost on the heath. I have only words to speak to you by. That's all that's left. How do I tell you I love you in a way that doesn't seem trite? Your olive green khakis and yellow check shirt, which you would wear later that Wednesday, are still folded on the laundry hamper in the bathroom. The smell of your body lingers here. Your shirt is wet from tears. Love doesn't know itself until the hour of separation. I forgot who said this. I just keep hearing voices. The emptiness is filled with voices. Mm. There's something that I want to ask you about, about that, which is this thing where um, she asked you why you never cut fruit and you said quite generously for my understanding of those kind of comments in relationship um, <laughs> you know it was unforgivable uh, which usually a question like that in relationship i know this from working with couples and being in couples <laughs> can can create a dramatically defensive reaction right yes <laughs> You know, as if, as if it's an accusation, <laughs> you never right. cut fruit. Yeah, yeah. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> but somehow your last encounter with each other uh, was that kind of normal moment, right? Uh, a normal couple, couple moment where she's referring to all the fruit you haven't ever cut <laughs> and asking you about it. And you're just saying, oh, I know it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about that that seemed to capture something that I assume must have been a kind of dependable part of your relationship, the ability to laugh at yourselves, or I don't know what, but it really stood out. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, to me, it's, 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 it's a little ironic that, you know, um, I wouldn't act defensively because so many other times I would. I say, what do you mean I don't cut fruit? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. You know, I would say, hey, stop, you know, I would, I would be on guard and, and, um, the, and that I wasn't. Ask me to cut fruit. <laughs> <laughs> What's with all the fruit? <laughs> so I, I don't, you know, I mean, I don't know why I didn't respond that, that more typical way and why I just suddenly realized, you know, God, by gosh, you're right, you know, you're always <laughs> chopping fruit. And so I'm not really kind of contributing that much to breakfast, and I feel bad about that. And so I don't know where that moment, I mean, that was really sort of stepping outside of the normal dynamic of, of husband and wife. Um, I, you know, I felt like I stepped out of it, and I don't know why I did, and she recognized and said, my, you know, I didn't expect that. <laughs> <laughs> It was a surprise to both of you. <laughs> but so, I was happy for you. That, you know, given that it was so unprepared, um, you would have got through it if you had instead said, you know, why are you jacking me up or whatever yeah, yeah, it might yeah, have yeah. been. But um, that isn't what happened. Uh, instead, you had this sort of surprising moment. Yeah. <laughs> It stood out for sure. But let's, since we have so little time left and because it's so uh, rare, almost rare, that I get to talk with someone who has loved deeply and the person has died and they love again. So I feel we've got to get that in. Uh, and I was wondering, 
um, for you, um, well, first of all, your your um, wife must be special, right? Because oh, she, she's, she's quite special, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I think for me anyway, there's a way that um, I'm not divisible from my first wife. You know, you can't kind right. of extract her. Um, her her loss blew me apart, but also she's in there, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I wondered how that was for you to make the choice, first of all, to take the chance, of course. Yeah. Um, knowing the way that life is. But then how, how your relationship with Claire and your relationship with your now wife interact with each other and blend in you? Well, um, that that re- that that requires another book. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you'll write that. <laughs> but we'll only just get started, of course. But it, to me, it's a fascinating. I continue after twenty-two years to think about it. Yes, right. You know, um, that I that I wouldn't be me without Joanne, my first wife, <clears throat> and I certainly don't want her to return. That would be terrible. At this point, you know, I used to dream about that. That uh, when I first sure. got together with my wife, how she would come back, and I'd say, "Uh oh," you know, kind of thing. But uh, I don't know. Just I assume that because of the way you talk about Claire, she's still pretty active within you in some ways. And has that been any kind of impact on your on your um, love now? I think so. I mean, I I just. I'm one of these kind of typical guys who really needs a smart woman to um, evolve. Um, I'm kind of embarrassed that to say that I could never evolve alone by myself, but I really needed to be in a good, in a good relationship with a remarkable woman. And um, so I think that my, my need for another Remarkable woman um, was 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 created by my experience with Claire. I needed another remarkable woman. I didn't want to be alone, mm-hmm. and um, I mentioned this quick briefly in the book, but it's only briefly that uh, they they that sort of the idea of, of the loner was always one of my models for life, and it came from you know ironically it came from literature. Being a literary guy, mm. I always admired these kind these, of romantic image, right? Yeah, yeah. the loner. <laughs> And so, you know, and, you know, that's, that lasted well into my life. And I, and it wasn't until I was with Claire that that really got dispelled. Um, and so the last thing I wanted to do was be alone. And it was a great temptation. It's like the temptation is to, to sit down in the chair and never get up again. There was a temptation just to sort of be a, mor- a mourner and, you know, remember, remember my late wife and, and, um, and, and, you know, work in the garden and walk the dog. Uh, mm easily imagine spending my life that way and then when I met this other woman um, and another adventure became possible I think the space boy in me kind of uh, um, just let <laughs> me turn the switch everyone's off. everyone's y- y- youthful when they fall for someone <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so this was another remarkable woman um, and um, my my 
I, I think the process of writing the book was so important to kind of putting me in a place where I could move on mm. and recognizing the love that we had in this life reminded me that, that I could be a loving man and that it was important to, to remain a loving man. And this new remarkable woman, you know, gave me an opportunity to be a loving man and she responded in kind. And, and that was an adventure that, that, that is an adventure that is, is sort of scary. Um, but I really embraced it. I think it's the, the thing that always makes me feel so deliciously hopeful that people experience terrible losses and the force of life is big enough to bring us back. <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the desire for life and love and all that. It's been great talking with you today, Jeff. Thanks so much for being here. It's been great talking with you, Cheryl. And again, you can find Jeff Porter's book at akashicbooks.com. Just look for Planet Claire. And um, it's a beautiful book, so I hope people go out and get a hold of it. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network.